The Reluctant Conformist A book by Richard Cowley Chapter 5, Episode 1 The Geologist A quote relevant to Chapter 5 from Paul Neil Redder 1915-2004 Oil Well Firefighter Well Killer I've done made a deal with the devil. He said he's going to give me an air-conditioned place if I go there, so I won't put all the fires out. The flight to Australia seemed never-ending. The Boeing 707 put down and took off a mind-numbing 18 times. Bartering for a 24-carat gold five-piece interlaced ring puzzle whilst half-asleep in bazaar-like Beirut airport was a mild but temporary distraction. The only excitement during the flight was aborting the Hong Kong landing as the wheels were about to meet the seawater-bounded runway. At the best of times, landing at Hong Kong airport was a heart-in-the-mouth experience as the airliner appeared to be flying between the tall city buildings before touching down. The 707's engines roared into life. The plane was thrown into a steep climb, and mountaintops whizzed past the portholes. Why the landing was aborted, the passengers never discovered. The only announcement was the diversion to the Philippines. All aboard were accommodated overnight in a luxury marble and crystal chandelier manila hotel, whilst the aircraft flew back to Hong Kong to collect the stranded passengers. Magnus was allocated an enormous suite of rooms, one of which housed a bed as big as a normal bedroom. Had the Paris office paid in advance before the flight down under, he could easily have succumbed to some of the special room service delights on offer. The house specialities included the relaxer, the royal treatment, and the emperor's delights. Perhaps for once, having no money was a saving grace. His employer's office was located in Brisbane, where he teamed up with a familiar face from training in Paris. Mike arrived from Churchill, the polar bear tourist paradise on the Hudson Bay in Quebec province, northeast Canada. Quite a shock for Mike's system. One day, in the super-chilled Arctic winter at 20 degrees below, the next, in a hot and humid subtropical Queensland summer at 30 above. Hello, Mike, Magnus said. Is that sunburn or chillblains you're sporting on your cheeks? G'day, Blue, replied the gnome-like Mike, grinning wildly. Nothing of the kind, just an ex-Arctic tan. If nothing else, Mike was adaptable. He'd only been in Australia for one day and already was at home with the local vernacular. The pair was assigned to an American deep-water semi-submersible rig, the Sedco 135G. Their new home was located in the Timor Sea, about an hour by chopper off Darwin, the capital of Australia's Wild West frontier, the Northern Territory. They arrived at the top end, as it's affectionately known amongst the locals, at the end of January 1970. Fortunately, they'd missed the tropical suicide season by a month or more, but still arrived during the wet, when the stifling hot and nearly 100% humid air is difficult to breathe. The rig was required to drill a relief well to choke off and plug a gas blowout. Some months earlier, whilst drilling at a depth of about 11,000 feet, a high-pressure gas reservoir was discovered. Over several hours, 
the drilling crew lost control of the well, allowing a gas surge to explode, creating an intense firestorm, a hundred meters high. Surprisingly, no one was killed, but the rig was badly damaged and had to be towed to Singapore for repair. For the following 16 months, gas continued to surge and burn on the water's surface. Flames licked 20 meters into the air, burning bright yellow above an acre or so of gas-cut sea. The spectacular inferno was only visible after dark. During daylight, the boiling ocean surface was the only evidence that gas was escaping. Occasionally, Mother Nature played games at the oil men's expense. She snuffed out the blaze with a combined assault of high seas, cyclonic winds, and torrential monsoonal rain. During daylight hours, the escaping gas presented only a limited danger to shipping, as the turbulent and bubbling sea was clearly visible and easily avoided. At dark, the blazing gas was a glowing beacon that could be seen from 20 miles away. Only the insane, or perhaps a Russian flag freighter, would knowingly approach the inferno. When the gas was not burning, a passing ship, venturing too close to the rig during the hours of darkness, could sail into the gas-cut sea, lose buoyancy, and sink 600 feet to the seabed. Reigniting the leaking gas necessitated some head-scratching, and several eccentric solutions were proposed and tried. John Lennon and Yoko Ono put great store in the exercise of imagination, but it's doubtful that they could have dreamt of solutions as improbable and harebrained as did the rig's tool pushers. A large oil drum, filled with blazing waste, was slung on a wire attached to the rig and to a service vessel stationed beyond the gas-cut sea about 500 metres from the rig. The flames burned through the drum's attachment before it had run 20 metres along the wire, sending the flaming container plummeting into the sea. Unlike the success enjoyed by Francis Drake when his fire ships singed the King of Spain's beard in 1587, floating a raft of flaming oil drums into the gas cloud was the second failure. The raft sank, dousing the blazing contents. An American tool pusher nicknamed Shoot. Shoot the son of a bitch! Because of his bow and arrow hunting obsession when ashore on leave, attempted a Geronimo method of firelighting. He struck the Apache warrior's stance and loose flaming arrows from the deck of a standby vessel into the gas cloud. This highly theatrical Redskins lookalike performance fared no better than the flaming drum in the drink fiasco. Ultimately, however, a successful process was discovered. A ship's distress player was fired into the gas, which ignited with an almighty whoosh that may well have singed the eyebrows off the brave soul who squeezed the signal gun's trigger. The new arrivals in Darwin, Magnus and Mike, together with various associated oil exploration personnel, were billeted at the Fanny Bay Hotel. This splendid seaside building, together with most of the township of Darwin, was trashed by Cyclone Tracy on Christmas Eve four years later. While the two strangers in town limbered up with pre-dinner drinks, they were approached by a very grim-looking geologist from Aquitaine, the French oil company, and the organization for which they were contracted to work. The link service vessel said Helen has sunk, and nine of her crew are missing, the Frenchman informed them. Merde! Catastrophique! She sank in minutes, was laying down positioning anchor for our rig, 
It seemed a bulky retrieval boy had become snagged in a marker line and was yanked deep underwater by the plummeting ten-ton anchor. On breaking free from the entanglement, the boy's buoyancy sent the heavy steel float rocketing to the surface with mighty force. Unfortunately, it didn't surge out of the sea like a leaping whale, but smashed into the service vessel hull, ripping off a steel plate and leaving a gaping hole which allowed seawater to flood into the engine room, and down went the said Cohelen, together with nine of her crew, to the seabed six hundred feet below. An alternative service vessel was found, the disaster being no more than a tragic and expensive industrial accident. Magnus lived under no delusions about his own importance. If he was injured or killed on the rig, he'd be flown ashore, immediately replaced, and just as quickly forgotten. A French colleague did experience a life-changing accident on another rig. The wire that feeds an instrument to measure the rate of drilling and depth of the hole had jumped off its jockey pulley. The Frenchman wrapped the wire round his hand, in the hope of flicking it back onto the pulley. Unfortunately, at that moment, the driller dropped the travelling block to which the wire was attached, heaving the Frenchman thirty feet into the air. The wire snagged, severing his hand across the palm, releasing him to fall onto the rig's steel deck, smashing his face and teeth, and crippling his other hand. This dreadful injury rendered him unemployable, and within a year or two his family life was torn apart in the divorce courts. As ever, industry marches on regardless of events. Make whole! Make whole! Make whole! That's the mantra, and all that counts in the oil patch, apart from making fat profits. Magnus worked aboard the Sedco 135G for eleven months, during which time no more lives were lost, although several fingers were crushed or nipped off between rolling drill pipes. By November, as progress on the relief well neared the final stages of communication with the blowout zone, the rig became critically overcrowded with all manner of oil field blowout specialists, including Coots, well killer, Matthews, a senior member of the legendary Red Adair stable. During the final well-plugging operation, the whole rig shuddered and rattled to the roar of a dozen or more giant diesel and gas turbine mud pumps, which were temporarily rigged up on the main deck. The pumps were employed to stifle a blowout, initially with salt water, followed by heavy drilling mud, and finally the escaping gas was sealed off by pumping quick-setting cement into the well. The pumps were run full bore until they seized or blew up, when they were immediately replaced. Amidst this cacophonous racket and billowing clouds of choking exhaust fumes, it wasn't only Coffalot Sims, a chain-smoking tool pusher who suffered, all aboard the rig endured interrupted sleep, sore throats, inflamed eyes and running noses. It wasn't a healthy or comfortable place to be. On shore leave, not long after arriving in Darwin, Magnus attended one of the celebrated late nights at the Darwin Hotel, which was the only air-conditioned cocktail bar in town. There he met the mascara-eyed, choker-wearing, adventurous blonde Sophia Elizabeth, who was exploring her homeland with two friends. A fortunate meeting for him, as it was her first night in town, allowing her insufficient time to get attached to some other lucky soul. For the remainder of their time in the Northern Territory, Sophia and Magnus became wonderfully close, 
spending most of their time together when he was ashore. Around the time Sophia returned home to Brisbane, where her newly graduated brother was to be married, the gas blowout was choked off, and consequently Magnus was released from his rig duties. With the relief well completed, he was to be transferred to Asia, but first returned to Brisbane for revaccination against yellow fever, cholera, and typhoid. On the long flight from Darwin, he teamed up with a rig colleague from the Australian Bureau for Mineral Resources, and together they enjoyed a splendid time swigging Gordon's gin and reminiscing about the past year's goings-on aboard the 135G and other oil patch gossip. Sophia and her brother Robert collected Magnus from the Brisbane airport, for he'd been invited to stay at their parents' home. He was full of gin and good humour, and Sophia was happy to see him. But there was an oddly subdued atmosphere pervading the car. This unsettled mood of mild gloominess continued at the home. Magnus failed to grasp the significance of the large stack of gift-wrapped packages in the middle of the lounge carpet. However, it soon became apparent what bombshell had stunned the household. Robert was to have been married that very day, but had prevaricated, taking his second thoughts right up to the wire. He'd called off the wedding just twenty-four hours before the fateful words, I do, were scheduled to float between the loving couple. Understandably, everybody except Magnus felt somewhat deflated at missing a good day out. However, the household soon discovered how a healthy dose of high-altitude gin could help break the ice and let in a chink of cheer. Over the next few days, the household returned to happy normality, and Magnus was made most welcome, feeling quite at home before heading off to exotic Asia.